Well, thank you, Peter, very much. And uh, in there. Oh. And thank you for coming. I uh, understand some of you only heard about this today, and somebody only heard about it yesterday. So thank you at the short notice of your being aware of this, of coming and joining us. And uh, we're grateful for the opportunity of being in Wagga. I called it Wagga before I came, because that's how you spell it. <laughs> but uh, it's been uh, interesting to be here and to meet a number of you. And as Peter said, we move on down to Melbourne uh, for meetings there this weekend. I personally first connected with Cape and Ray Hall in England when I was 12 years of age. And uh, in the, I'd just become a Christian. And in the city near where I lived in, in England, Hereford, which is where the Hereford cattle come from, and I see a few of them around here on the drive down. Uh, Major Ian Thomas, Peter's father, came for 10 days of meetings. It began on a Wednesday and right, went right through to the Sunday, 10 days later. And uh, somebody invited me to go on the second night, and, and I thought, well, okay, it's something to do. And I remember being spellbound, and I went back every night until the end of those 10 days, even though I was just 12 years of age, I'd just become a Christian not long before. And then I went to uh, one of the summer, we took a whole team. I was taken by someone who took a team of uh, teenagers to, to a teenager week that they had at Cape May during the school holidays. Went back the next year. In fact, the next year, Peter came down to near where I lived, and we went back together and uh, spent a couple of weeks there, and then I went back and worked in my school holidays, and I went to the Bible school, and uh, Cape Mary was a place I held really in awe because of the people there who taught me so much and the great respect I had for them, so I was not expecting I'd one day join the, the team there, but uh, I did, and spent 26 years there before, in 2001, moving to Toronto, I think I mentioned this before, some of you were not here, but uh, we didn't have any desire to move across the Atlantic, but God made it very clear to us, we felt, that uh, the invitation to go and lead the People's Church was, was from him, and we believe it was. So we stayed there, uh, and then I stepped down from that about 18 months ago, uh, and they call me Minister at Large now, which... Uh, has nothing to do with my girth. It's about uh, being free to roam as people invite us to speak, but with the relationship, the informal relationship that we have with um, uh, the People's Church. We have three children who actually, right now, all three of them are in Africa. Our eldest daughter and her husband are missionaries in South Africa. Our second daughter and her husband uh, work in Toronto in a ministry called Move In. Her husband is one of the leaders of that, full-time leaders, young people moving into tough, rough areas of the city to be a presence and to establish, or lead people to Christ and establish churches. They don't call them churches, they call them communities. So join the community, and they have Sunday night, about 40 who join in the place where my daughter and son-in-law uh, are working, Sunday afternoon at 4 o'clock. But... They're going to a move-in conference in Germany, which starts next week. He's involved in that and leading it. And they've gone to South Africa to visit my daughter and son-in-law on the way there. It's a long way around, but they've done that. They got a ticket to go from Toronto 
to Frankfurt, to Johannesburg, to back to Frankfurt and back to Toronto for less than $1,000, which is pretty good. So they decided that because they got such a good ticket, I thought they'd be going on a, you know, a back of a bicycle or something, but it was in a plane. And uh, they're there right now. My son, who is uh, our third, he is a pilot and he is in West Africa flying for the United Nations in Mali. Uh, troop movements, mainly uh, VIPs and also uh, when needed humanitarian aid. They, they fly around uh, and deliver to different places. So we're nearly all in the Southern Hemisphere. I think it's the first time that our family have all been in the Southern Hemisphere. Mali is just above the border, so my son isn't quite in the Southern Hemisphere. But uh, I think it's the first time we've all been in this kind of climate anyway at the same time. Uh, so uh, we, we, we uh, don't feel bad being away when my wife is committed to my daughter and she has twin children. They're now one, years of, one year of age. She's helped them a lot. Uh, and uh, they're away, we're away, so her conscience is clear about not being there to help them. <laughs> but what I'm going to do tonight, we'll turn back to the passage that, at least don't turn to this, I'll read you the passage has been the basis of what we've talked about this week, because the theme uh, for this week has been experiencing Christ in you. And the key verse that we have used for that is 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 2 Corinthians 13 in verse 5, where Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. As I pointed out, not test your Bibles, not test your doctrine, not test your experience, test yourself. And then he says, do you not realize that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And then he says, and I trust you'll discover that we have not failed the test. And the reason why Paul says that is because through this second letter to the Corinthians, which is a very autobiographical letter, he's talked about so many of the troubles and trials and pressures they've been in. We looked at that on Tuesday night. And he's discovered when everything else is stripped away, that what he's left with is Jesus. And you will see, says Paul, we've not failed the test. We know Jesus Christ best, not when things are going well, when things are going with difficulty and we have nowhere else to turn. I quoted Ron Dunn as saying, you do not know that, you'll never know that Jesus Christ is all you need until Jesus Christ is all you've got. And Paul has rehearsed some of those experiences in his own life. Last night we looked in chapter 3 of Second Corinthians at an aspect of what it means for Christ to be in us. He compares the old covenant with the new covenant. The old covenant written on stone, the Ten Commandments brought death. The new covenant written by the Spirit of God in the human heart brings life. And we talked about that. The commandments of the old covenant become the promises of the new covenant. You shall not steal as a command becomes you shall not steal as a promise. And we talked about that last night. I was going back to Second Corinthians tonight until this morning. And I began to sense this morning that it would be helpful to continue that theme from last night. What it is experientially to know the Lord Jesus Christ living in us as the source of our righteousness. That's uh, 
that, that's a word that, that uh, qualifies who we are in Christ before God, but also the developing growth in godliness that is to be the experience of every Christian. And to follow on that theme, I'm going to take you to Galatians chapter 5. And I'm going to read from verse 16 down to verse 26. I'm reading from the New International Version. And Paul writes there, So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature, or the flesh, which is the single word in the Greek from which this is translated. That's really a paraphrase, sinful nature. It's a, it's a term invented by uh, Augustine in the 5th century. It's valid, but by flesh, what the scripture means is all that I am in myself detached from God, the natural me. So he says there that uh, live by the spirit and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh for the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. But if you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But, in contrast, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control against such things there is no law. The Christian life is a battleground, not a picnic. There is a feast available to us in the Christian life. In Psalm 23, you lay, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemy. There's a feast, you prepare a table, but there's also a fight. It's in the presence of my enemy. I was going to talk tonight from 2 Corinthians chapter 12 about the enemy Satan and what Paul says there about what I will call the ministry of Satan to his life, which with a thorn in his flesh permitted by God, drove him in his weakness to discover, as he says, God saying to him, my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul says, I will all the more gladly rejoice in my weakness. Saying there that Satan actually has a positive role in my life. It would be destructive were I not to respond to uh, the Spirit of God in such a way that my weakness drives me to dependence upon him. And the devil, of course, is a battle that we engage in. He prowls around like a mighty roaring lion, etc., etc. Resist him, he'll flee from you. There are a lot of statements about that in the New Testament. But the battleground also is within our own souls. It is a battleground between the flesh and the spirit. And it is this flesh, this old nature, which is itself corrupted. That's why James says in the book of James, um, chapter 4, let me just uh, read it to you. He says, uh, was it James chapter 1? Each one is tempted, verse 13, when by his own desire he is dragged away and enticed. In other words, he says temptation is 
from within. It's our own desire. And if the devil died tonight, you and I would battle with sin tomorrow because it was within us, our own corrupt nature. And temptation, of course, by definition, is attractive, otherwise it wouldn't be a temptation. And so the fact that we struggle with temptation is because deep down in our hearts, we actually like the idea of that which is tempting us. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a temptation. I've never been tempted to walk in front of a moving bus. It has no appeal to me. I have been tempted to push somebody else in front of a moving bus, depending who it is. Because by definition, temptation is attractive. If I could get away with this, if nobody was looking, if God turned a blind eye, you wouldn't believe how I would live, except it would probably be like you. The kind of things that we would find ourselves getting drawn into. Because sin comes from within, it is essentially an inside job. As verse 17 of Galatians 5 says, the sinful nature, the flesh, desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want, because the real you is indwelt by the Spirit with the appetites, the hunger, the thirst for righteousness, but the flesh is so active and batting that you actually do not do what you really want to do. Paul explained that more fully in Romans chapter 7. Remember Romans 7 verse 15? I do not understand what I do, he says. What I want to do, I don't do. What I hate, I do. In other words, I know what's right. And I want to do it, but I don't. I know what's wrong, and I say I will never do that again, but I do. Anybody here got that problem? Uh, we need a bit of honesty around the place. Uh, yes, Andrew, I saw your hand go up slowly, but it went up. <laughs> it's a problem you've got, it's a problem I've got. And it's interesting that, that Paul there in Romans uh, uh, 7 says in verse 16, if I, do, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good as it is. It's no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin living in me. Now that sounds a very convenient excuse, doesn't it? If I do what I don't want to do, it's no longer I, it's sin living in me that does it. And he repeats it again in verse 20. If I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, it is sin living in me that does it. Isn't that a convenient excuse? Well, it's not me doing this. I mean, if at the end of this service, we were chatting at the back and suddenly I clenched my fist and punched you in the, in the nose. And then I said, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't do that. It was not me who did that. It was sin living in me that did that. Would you accept that as an explanation? No. And, and, and especially if I clenched my fist and did the second, oh, right, no, no, that wasn't me. That was sin living in me. That's it. You, you probably say, listen, John, there's a bit of sin in me too. Pow, and you probably hit me back. <laughs> what does Paul mean? It is no longer I who do it, but sin living in me. And by the way, Compare this verse with Galatians 2.20, which says, It's no longer I who live, but Christ living in me. Romans 7.20, It's no longer I who do it, but sin living in me. Those are the two options. Christ living in me, sin living in me, as the source of, uh, of how I live and how I behave. But of course, what Paul is talking about here when he talks about sin living in me, is not sin as actions, but sin as a principle. He talks about the law of sin. 
a bit like the law of gravity. If I hold this up and let it go, it's going to fall, not because I push it down. I may push it up, but there's a law in, in uh, the earth that says what goes up comes down, the law of gravity. And Paul says there's something in me called the law of sin that's a little bit like the law of gravity. And what I discovered, he says in Romans 7 and 8, is that the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus sets me free from the law of sin and death. There's this law of gravity, law of sin in me, but there's another law, a more powerful law, law than the law of sin, which sets me free. It's the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. When we came here uh, a week or so ago, uh, we didn't go to the west coast of Canada and jump in the direction of Sydney in the hope we could manage to get here. We knew that wouldn't work. We knew there was no way we could jump across the Pacific Ocean because we're bound by gravity and uh, there's no way we have the ability to violate that law of gravity. So we didn't try to jump here, but we know there is a means. There's a higher law, another law, called the law of aerodynamics. And so we went to uh, Toronto Airport and boarded an aircraft. And that aircraft shot down the runway, of course, got to the point of no return, lifted up into the air. And as we flew into the air, I'll be able to say what Paul said in Romans chapter 8 and verse 2. He said, the law of the spirit of life in Christ sets me free from the law of sin. I could have said the law of aerodynamics sets me free from the law of gravity. It's not that gravity gives up. It's not the law of sin gives up. In fact, every moment in the air, gravity is totally committed to smashing that plane to the ground. If anything, if the engine cuts... If both engines cut, gravity will say, thank you very much, and down it will go. The law of sin never gives up because the principle here of the law of the spirit of life in Christ setting us free from the law of sin is not that Jesus Christ eradicates sin, but he counteracts sin. In the way that the law of aerodynamics counteracts the law of gravity, so the spirit of Jesus Christ counteracts the law of sin and the moment we cease to be trusting him and turn to our own resources, which is what Paul calls in Galatians 5, the flesh, that law of sin takes over again. And the battle is taking place uh, constantly. And the gospel is not about improving the old nature. It's more profound than that. It's about replacing the old nature with the spirit of Jesus Christ. And it is the Holy Spirit who lives the life of Jesus Christ in us. The Christian life is not I, but Christ. And the result of this in the passage we read is that the Spirit within us produces what Paul calls there the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit, of course, is ultimately the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, he contrasts the fruit of the Spirit here with the acts of the flesh. In other words, what is natural to me and then what is the purpose of the Holy Spirit. What is natural to me, the acts of the flesh are in verse 19. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Now we stand back and say, oh, what a, what a bad list. But I tell you this, if you're the editor of a tabloid newspaper, you need this verse on your desk. 
This is the stuff people like to read about. If you're the script writer of a soap opera, this is the, de- this is the text you need on your desk. This is what will turn people onto your program. If you can weed into your story sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, adultery, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, etc. Because something in the old nature loves it. That's its natural habitat. The acts of the flesh. New York City, several years ago now, and I read in the paper and thought it was interesting, had a power cut down um, Fifth Avenue, which is the main shopping street in New York City. And for about two hours, the power was out. It was in a December day, and it was late afternoon. It was already dusk. Everything went dark. People were out on the streets and shopping and doing their business. And when the lights came back on, they discovered people running down the road carrying television sets and jewelry and all kinds of things they had nicked out of these shops when the lights went out. Ordinary, respectable people who went fully intended to pay, but the lights are out, I can get away with anything, kind of thing. And they had masses of arrests, apparently, of people on Fifth Avenue taking away stolen property. And, uh, you know, we all behave when the lights are on, don't we? Because, you know, we need to. We need to be social beings. But the old nature within us, when the lights are off and we are alone, is not nice. And it's true in me, and it's true in you. But there's a contrast to it, this law of the spirit of life, which then produces, verse 22, the fruitless spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And we say, what a beautiful list. But if if you're the editor of a tabloid newspaper, these are not the stories you're looking for. If you're the scriptwriter of a soap opera, this doesn't make for good viewing. It's just love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-will. That's too good. That's not what people want. And yet this, of course, is what the Spirit of God is intent on producing in us as a consequence of his presence in us that increasingly these virtues that reveal the character of the Lord Jesus Christ become evident within us. If I asked you how many fruit of the Spirit are there, you might do a quick count and say nine. But if you look carefully, you'll realize this is a singular statement. The fruit of the Spirit is, and then he lists these qualities, not the fruits of the Spirit are. In other words, it is one Fruit. You can't say this person over here is loving and this over here is peaceful and this person over here is gentle. This person over here is joy. A pity about the fact he isn't loving, but he's got lots of joy and it's all divided up. No, this is the, 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 the multiple expression of the character of Jesus Christ that's placed within us. And I thought it might be helpful to look at some of these things. We won't have time to look at them all because there are nine that are expressions of this uh, one uh, work of the Holy Spirit within us. But we could sum it up 
with the word character, and in particular the character of Christ. And of course, character is not personality. Our personalities differ. Uh, some are extroverts, some are introverts. Some are bright and breezy. Some are dark and clouded. And we, we're all different personality-wise. We mustn't confuse those two. And uh, we're unique uh, as persons. But within that personality, there is a character that the Lord Jesus Christ is committed to express through us as the fruit of the Holy Spirit in us. Let me just point out something I suppose is fairly obvious, but uh, I hadn't thought about it until fairly recently, that this list is called the fruit of the Spirit, not the flowers of the Spirit. You say, what's the difference? Well, flowers make a place look nice. Uh, most respectable places where I speak usually have some flowers somewhere. Uh, this one doesn't, but that's okay. <laughs> this is a school, after all. <laughs> but uh, someone's a bit droopy, you know, put some flowers. Uh, and uh, these are not the flowers of the Spirit to make Christians nice people. So it's nice having a Christian living next door to you because they don't play their music at one o'clock in the morning and they're polite to you and uh, if you're in trouble, they help you out. It's lovely being next door to Christians. That's fine, but that's not what this is about. These are not flowers to make us attractive and nice. This is the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit has an altogether different function. Fruit is not decorative. You don't say, this place is a bit drab. Why don't we hang up a banana? That wouldn't help, you see. What are fruit for? Fruit of consumption, for eating. Fruit of for hungry people. And the fruitless spirit is not things that people stand back and look at and say, wow, aren't they wonderful people? But the fruit of the spirit is that which people can come and feed on from your life, my life. They feed on our love. Our peace ex extends into their lives and brings them stability, our gentleness, our control. And um, people are hungry to be loved. People are hungry to experience kindness and faithfulness and self-control. Let me look just at one or two of these in particular. Love is the first in the list and uh, Many of the other virtues derive from love, like kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and so on. When we say the fruit of the Spirit is love, what do we mean by that? Because we use this word love in, in a multitude of ways. I, I can say to you, I love my wife, which is true. I can say to you, I love ice cream, which is true. I can say I love sunny weather, which is true. I love Australia, which is true. But you realize I'm, I'm using the word differently in every case. Stuart Briscoe, who some of you met here two or three years ago, I once heard him say, I love my wife and I love my dog. He said, now obviously, when I say I love my wife and I love my dog, I'm talking about something different. He said, for example, if it's raining, I send my wife out to bring the dog in. <laughs> Typical Briscoe comment. <laughs> but the point is, uh, we use this word in, in different ways, and we tend to think of, uh, of love primarily as being an emotion. 
but it's more volitional than emotional. It is more to do with the will. Because Paul wrote, and I think this is the best definition of love in Philippians 2 verse 3, and I like the way the New American Standard puts it. Do nothing from selfishness or or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourself. The NIV says, regard others as better than yourself. That seems to be like putting a value judgment. He's better than me, she's better than me. And that may not be helpful, but I think this is a better uh, translation. Regard others as more important than yourself. So how do you know when someone loves you? You feel important to them. How do you express love to somebody? You make them feel important. When does somebody question whether they're loved when they don't feel important? What causes marriage to break up when one of them doesn't feel important anymore to the other one? Because love is considering others more important than yourself. It is not about emotion. You can do this at the supermarket when you're checking out with your, with, with your purchases. The way you treat the lady behind the counter is important. And you give her dignity and kindness. I remember being in a line. This was in England uh, last year in a supermarket. And I was about fourth in the line. And the person at the front was really grumpy and giving the lady behind the counter a a tough time. And uh, there was some dispute over some issue. And and he was not kind at all. Then the next one came along and she was in a bad mood. And uh, three of them ahead of me all seemed to treat this poor woman. And when I got there, I said, you're having a bad day, aren't you? And she said, yes, I seem to be. I said, uh, does anybody tell you you're important? She said, of course I'm not. I said, of course you are. And we had a little conversation. And uh, she had a big beam on her face when I left her. Now, I don't go around doing that all the time, by the way. (laughs) It was just an instance I felt a bit sorry for her. But isn't that what love is? Making someone feel more important. You don't have to know them. don't have to be emotionally connected with them. It's a disposition of will. I think, you know, in 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 4, we have that uh, passage that uh, is read at weddings all the time, but it wasn't written about weddings, but nevertheless, that's, that's a good place to read it. And uh, you know this passage, 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 4, um, probably the classic description of love in all of literature. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, and always hopes. Always hopes and always perseveres. Love never fails. We read that. We say, yes, that's a wonderful description of love. Probably the best in all of literature. I want to read it in two more ways. I want to read those same verses and replace the word love with the name Jesus. And see if it makes sense. Jesus Christ is patient. Jesus is kind. He does not envy. He does not boast. He is not proud. He is not rude. He is not self-seeking. He is not easily angered. He keeps no record of wrongs. Jesus Christ does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. He always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Jesus Christ never fails. Does that make sense? Of course it does. So what is love is an expression of Jesus Christ. Here's the third way to read it. And read it this way 
on your knees on your own sometime. Put your own name in and see if it makes sense. And I say this with some embarrassment because if I put my name in here, I have to go to my knees because of the divergence between what this portrays and what I'm intended by the Lord Jesus Christ to be. I won't say my own name, but imagine your name or my name in there saying that you're patient, you're kind, you do not envy, you do not boast, you are not proud, you're not rude, you're not self-seeking, you're not easily angered, you keep no record of wrongs. You do not delight in evil, but rejoice with the truth. You always protect, always trust, always hope, always perseveres, and you never fail. Some years ago, I was in Boston in the United States. I was invited there to speak at a conference of pastors from the six New England states of Massachusetts and all the rest of it up in the six of them up there, Vermont, New Hampshire, etc. And uh, one of the other speakers at this conference was a man called Juan Carlos Ortiz. I don't know if any of you know his name. Anybody know him? Yeah, Juan Carlos Ortiz is a pastor. That's right. He wrote the book Disciple, which was a, a bestseller. He was a pastor in Buenos Aires in Argentina. And one day he told us something which really challenged me. I'll tell you what it was that he told us. He, he was pastor of what was regarded as the fastest growing church in Buenos Aires. It had grown from 300 to 1,000 in a very short time while he had been leading that church as his pastor. By the way, he's the brother-in-law of Luis Palau, who perhaps you're more familiar with. But he said, I, I felt quite pleased about this. People would say to me, wow, you're the pastor of the fastest growing church in Buenos Aires. And then he said he was walking, uh, traveling by the local cemetery one day, and he noticed that that was growing too. And he said, what does it mean to grow? And he felt that God lay on his heart to preach a series of messages on love. He said, the first Sunday, I prepared my message, looking at the different Greek words and what their meanings were and that kind of thing. He said, during the first part of the service, while the worship leader was leading the uh, music and the singing, I felt a very strong compulsion that I should not preach my message, he said. And then the worship leader said, and now Brother Juan Carlos will come and bring us his message. So I got up, he said, and I went to the pulpit. And I said, brothers and sisters, my text this morning is love one another. And then he went and sat down. And he just sat down and it was silent for two minutes, which is a long time. You don't know what's happening. He said the worship leader leaned across and said, are we supposed to sing another song? After two minutes, he got up and he said, brothers and sisters, my text this morning is love one another. When and sat down again. There was a discomfort throughout the building. His wife, he said, in the balcony, thought he'd flipped. <laughs> 
He got up another time and said, I've forgotten this three or four times, and said, my text this morning is love one another. And he went and sat down. And he said, when he sat down, somebody over here turned to somebody in the same row and said, is there any way I can love you? Somebody else turned to somebody else. And before long, he said, the whole church was alive with people talking. He said, 28 people, 28 unemployed people went home with a job that morning. He gave a list of other needs that, pe- that people had. Single mums who went home with a family who said, we'll be a protection for you. He said, if I preach my message on love, they would have said, thank you, Pastor, that was a great message. I like that bit about the Greek meaning of whatever it is. But he said 28 people would have gone home unemployed and nobody would have cared. So the next Sunday, he said, he got up and said, brothers and sisters, I have the same text as last week. Love one another. And he sat down and people said, who can I help this week? He said, for three months, he never preached a sermon. He just said, love one another. He said, 300 people left the church. They said, we don't employ you to stand up and say, love one another. We employ you to teach us from the word of God. But he said, those that were left became a community whose first interest when they came together was, is there anything I can do for you? After three months, he said, he got up and he said, Brothers and sisters, the Lord has given me a new text this morning. And they all applauded. He said, my text is, love your neighbor as yourself. And he sat down and it was silent. Somebody got up, he said, went out to an exit. Somebody else got up. Within a few minutes, he said, the whole church was moving and people going out into the parking lot and getting in their cars going back to their homes or catching the buses or walking back to where they lived. And when they got home, they were going to the places next door and saying, is there anything I can do for you? He said, it was a bad time to do it. It was the week before Christmas. He said, my wife and I and our two daughters, he said, went back to our house. And uh, we went down our road and we discovered things we had no idea were going on behind some of those closed doors. We discovered need we had no idea was there. He said, we had Christmas presents we were going to give each other. We gave all our Christmas presents away to somebody else, to other people. And then he said, that process over those months transformed our church and transformed our community. And uh, I remember being so convicted. And, of course, when you're a preacher, you say, oh, I should do that. But, of course, these have divine moments. And this was a divine moment for, for, for them and that church. But the great challenge is, you see, that, as he said later, he said, I realized when I knew the cemeteries were growing, that we weren't actually growing. We were just getting fatter. So when I came there, we had 300 unloving Christians. Now we had a thousand unloving That isn't growing, he said. That's getting fat. And uh, this, of course, is what the Spirit of God would produce in us. Deep down, we want it. Sometimes we feel, I don't know how to express it. I don't know what opportunity I have to express it. But this compulsion, this, this love, this kindness, this disposition towards people where our hearts go out to them is, is, is a Holy Spirit work within us. And sometimes we're a little shy about expressing it. 
and doing it. I don't know if mission trips are common here in Australia, going out to engage in ministry and missions as teams. We have a number that go out from our church. And sometimes I hear them say, we're going to go and show people the love of Christ. It sounds good, of course, but we can't do that. We can only show them our own love. We can't go and say, you know, Jesus loves you. Oh, I've got to go, but he, he does love you. Bye-bye. That doesn't say anything. You can only show them your own love. And I've talked to teams who've been away and, and said, be prepared not just to do something that's a kind of spiritual kind performance while you're away. You may see a hundred people, but there may be one, there may be two that you're going to connect with in a way that's much deeper. You can't show them the love of God, only show them your own love. And that may lead them to understand something bigger. There's love. And he says there's joy. I'm not going to talk about this other than to say, in Philippians 4, there's a verse where Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And I'll say it again, rejoice. And I just say, don't misread that verse as saying, Rejoice. And I'll say it again, rejoice. That, of course, is unreasonable to tell somebody, just rejoice. What he says is rejoice in the Lord. In fact, if you look at Philippians chapter 4, sometime not now, you, you find he tells the people that to stand firm in the Lord. That two women who were fighting, he told them to agree in the Lord. He told them to rejoice in the Lord. He told them to guard their hearts, to guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, in the Lord. He says in verse 10, I rejoice greatly in the Lord. He says in verse 13, I can do everything through him, that is, in the Lord. Verse 19, my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in the Lord, in Christ Jesus. So in this, the, the, Philippians chapter 4, that's the key. All of this is, not, not you two women get on with each other and sort out your problem, but agree together in the Lord. That is your common ground. That's the common meeting place. And it doesn't matter what may be happening to us. It is not rejoice despite your circumstances. It's rejoice in the Lord in your circumstances, Paul writing this as he was from a Roman prison. And there is a source of joy, he says. That you find your resources in the Lord, in the privacy of your own heart. But as you find when things are going wrong, as we've already seen on Tuesday night, when our circumstances are against us and put us under pressure, that is there we discover I either have a real Jesus or I have a phony Jesus. This either works or it's all a pretense. So he says, rejoice in the Lord. I won't say more about joy there, but it's an important one as well. Then he talks about peace. This is an important one too. There, there are two kinds of peace in the New Testament. It speaks of peace with God. Romans 5 verse 1, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the barrier between us broken down. We're now friends. We're not in conflict. We have peace with God. But scripture, the New Testament also speaks of the peace of God. Again, that's in Philippians and chapter 4 where he talks about letting the peace of God reign in your heart. Let me just find it. Philippians chapter 4. And verse uh, 6 and 7, don't be anxious about anything, he says. Uh, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And this is the result, the peace of God, 
which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That seems a very unreasonable thing to say to somebody, isn't it? Don't be anxious about anything. Don't be anxious about anything. Well, well, I've just been to visit my doctor. He's given me a terrible prognosis. And you say, don't be anxious? My kids are running wild. And you say, don't be anxious? We're facing bankruptcy. You say, don't be anxious? What does he mean? Just shrug it off? No. He says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, that is, in the things that make you anxious, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present the request to God. In other words, in the thing that makes you anxious, instead of being anxious, give it to God with thanksgiving, meaning, thank you that you are fully capable of working in this situation, not asking him, but thanking him for his presence and his uh, sufficiency in that situation. And the result of that, he says, will be that the peace of God, which passes understanding, which is not rational, will guard your heart, protect your heart. It'll guard your mind. It'll protect your mind in Christ Jesus. And you see... Our security is not found in where we are and what our circumstances are. Our security is found in who we're with. Is it the Lord Jesus who is my present and my life and my stability and my anchor in this situation? Let me illustrate that. When our kids were younger... My wife was out one evening, and uh, they were in bed. My daughter, Laura, then was about five years of age, maybe a little bit less. And I was sitting in the lounge of our home while they were in bed, and suddenly I heard a scream from Laura's room. And it wasn't a cry, it was a scream. And I ran to her room, opened the door, put the light on, went over and sat on the end of her bed, and I took Laura in my arm, and she was clearly... Uh, distressed and I said Laura what is the matter and she said to me there's somebody in the cupboard I said what do you mean there's somebody in the cupboard I said there's nobody in the cupboard there's seriously somebody in the cupboard I said no no there's nobody in the cupboard they wouldn't fit she said there is there is there's somebody in the cupboard I said Laura you've had a nasty dream there's nobody in the cupboard and I held her in my arm and she quietened it down and as she quietened down suddenly I heard a noise from the cupboard. I looked at Laura and she looked at me, her eyes the size of saucers. And then I heard it again. I said, Laura, there's something in the cupboard. (laughs) You stay there. It was the wardrobe. I went up to the cupboard, had two doors. I put one hand on one door, one hand on the other, looked back at Laura. And I opened the cupboard and there was the cat locked in the wardrobe. (laughs) So I picked up the cat and put it out to the window. <laughs> and when I sat down with Laura, and I said, Laura, that was a nasty fright, wasn't it? Naughty cat. Who put the cat in the cupboard? Now you settle down and go back to sleep, she said, but I'm afraid. I said, well, I know you were afraid, but it was only the cat, wasn't it? But I'm still afraid. But the cat's gone. You saw it go. It should be landing shortly. <laughs> She said, but I'm still afraid. Will you stay with me? 
And I understood what she needed. And I said, yes, I'll stay. And I tucked her in. I sat down at the end of her bed. And before long, she was asleep. But what she was saying was this. I'm scared. I'm frightened. But if that is sitting in the room, I'm okay. If something's going to get me, it has to get him first. <laughs> See, when they're young, they think like that. They get over it after a while. But when they're young, it's lovely. They think like that. Um, and you see when Paul says don't be anxious about anything he's not mocking them and saying hey come on just don't be anxious just toughen up no he's saying in the situation that makes you anxious and there are many give it to God thanking him that he is completely sufficient and you'll discover this the peace of God which passes understanding that is it goes beyond what is rational you even feel a bit embarrassed about it it'll guard your heart It'll guard your mind, and it's your heart and your mind that need protection in Christ Jesus. Peace is not the absence of trouble. It is something to be found in the, in the midst of trouble. In England, some years ago, there was an art competition, and people were to submit their uh, works of art, and the theme that was to be painted was peace. And there were two prize winners. One had gone up to the northwest of England to the beautiful Lake District, painted a beautiful picture, a lake in the foreground, mountains in the background, beautiful blue sky. Took some liberty to put a blue sky in. <laughs> Couple little puffs of white cloud maybe going by. Little family of ducks in the forefront of the picture on the beautiful lake. And you looked at that picture, you thought to yourself, what a beautiful place. I'd love to go there. Wouldn't it be wonderful to go and spend some time there? He called his picture Peace. And he won second prize. The other artist went down to Cornwall, where the uh, peninsula of Cornwall juts out into the Atlantic Ocean. And he painted a picture on the coast in a storm. There were huge waves that were rolling in from the sea and lashing against the base of the cliff and throwing up their surf. The sky was black. There was a tree on the top of the cliff at a sort of 45-degree angle as the gales were coming in from the ocean. You looked at the picture, it made you feel cold, made you feel glad that you were indoors. But two-thirds of the way up the cliff, there was a cleft in the rock, and in the cleft of the rock there was a nest, and in the nest there was a gull with its eyes closed. And he called his picture Peace, and he won first prize. And the kind of peace that... Paul is talking about here that is the fruitless spirit is not the peace of the tranquil Lake District scene. Beautiful though that may be and enjoy that when it comes, if it comes. But that isn't the peace of God. The peace of God is in the midst of the storm. And in what we looked at in 2 Corinthians, especially on Tuesday night, we, we, we saw something of that in all the battles and conflicts in which Paul found himself. Love, joy, peace, patience. You know, 
God is never in a hurry. We usually are. Impatience has probably become one of the uh, curses of our day. We want everything now, everything fast. Some years ago, when credit cards were first coming into circulation, there was a UK credit card firm that had the slogan, this credit card, I won't tell you its name, takes the waiting out of wanting. Why are you waiting? Get it now. That was the appeal. And people went for it. And, uh, you know, Scripture isn't like that, is it? God doesn't work that way. I, you know, back in the book of Genesis, an occasion when three visitors came to Abraham. And... Uh, we won't talk about who the visitors were or what their purpose was. But when they'd finished their discussion with Abraham, they said, we're going to leave. And Abraham said, no, please stay for a meal. Well, we, we need to leave. No, no, just stay for a meal. All right, we'll stay for a meal. And since Abraham went to a servant and said, I want you to go out into the field and get the fatted calf. I want you to bring it in. I want you to kill it. I want you to prepare it and then to cook it. Uh, and then to somebody else, would you go out and, and, and get some of the best grain and bring it in? And then I want you to grind the grain and then make some flour and then make some bread. This is not McDonald's, is it? You know, just stay for a meal. All right, uh, okay, okay, run out and get, where's the beef? It's bouncing over the hill there, but I'll send somebody with a lasso to bring it back and we'll get it ready for you eventually. You know, we live in a day when we don't tolerate waiting, do we? I mentioned this in the pastor's meeting we had. We were discussing some aspect on Tuesday morning. And uh, you know, when God told Abraham at the age of 75, you're going to have a son, and from that son will come a nation, and the seed in that nation will be the source of blessing the world. Abraham was 75. He was already as good as dead, it says twice about him. Sarah, his wife, was 65, past the menopause, already worn out, it says she was in, the, in Romans chapter 4. And Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And you would have thought, as I'm sure Abraham thought, we're going to have a baby in nine months. God's made a promise. We're already old. He's going to bring it. But nine months went by, two years went by, five years went by, ten years went by. Abraham and Sarah are now so frustrated, they decide they'll try to help God out. And Sarah makes a suggestion, have the baby through the maid Hagar. And so Hagar conceives Abraham's baby, and they call him Ishmael, and he's thrilled to bits. At last, I've got my own little boy. But 13 years later, when Abraham was 99, God said, Abraham, probably the first time God has spoken to him for 24 years. Uh, yes. Remember I told you to have a son? Well, well, yes. Well, this time next year, your wife will give birth to a son. Probably said we've already got him. He's 13 years of age now. He's out there playing football. But it tells us in Genesis 21, on the very day God had said, Isaac was born. You think, why did God wait 25 years? You make this promise. You kind of tease Abraham. You're going to have a son. He's 75. She's 65. It's already impossible. They're going to get a son very quickly. But they didn't. They waited 25 years. And then the son that was given to them was the son Isaac. And I'm sure Abraham thought, now at last we can get this nation on the road. We've got, we got this boy who grew up when he's 20. He'll marry. And he'll have a father, a child every year for the next 25 years. And, and we'll get these tribes started. And we'll get this nation organized. 
But as Isaac grew up, the one through whom all the promises would come to fulfillment, it was evident he wasn't very interested in girls. Because when he was 40, his father organized somebody to go and find a wife for him. He wasn't finding one for himself. And so the servant went away, came back with, with a girl, and, and um, Isaac said, uh, she'll do. And uh, took her into his tent. And of all, her name was Rebecca, of all the women in the Middle East, it says, and Rebecca was barren. And she couldn't conceive. It was 20 years when Isaac was 60. She did conceive only once. And she conceived twins, Esau and Jacob. One was hairy, one was smooth, totally different. And you know the story of that. And you know all the calamities in both their lives, how God eventually wrestled with, Isaac, with Jacob, changed his name to Israel. He fathered 12 sons. They went down into Egypt to avoid a famine. And it's very interesting. At the end of Genesis, the very last phrase of Genesis is about Joseph, Jacob's son, he was in a coffin in Egypt. The last three words of Genesis, coffin in Egypt. And it sounds, it seems to sort of portray what's happened to the people of Israel. They end up in a coffin. It took, 85, it took 85 years to get the first grandchild. And now they're off into exile. They stay in Egypt for 400 years. The gap between Genesis and Exodus is as long as the gap between Malachi and Matthew. 400 years before Australia was ever, uh, the first fleet ever arrived, put it that way. And so long it goes back, 400 years. And then eventually, of course, they do come back into Canaan. But their story from then on, the promise that God had made to Abraham was really about the seed of the woman, not seeds, Paul says in Galatians 3 very clearly. It's the seed, it is Christ who was the promise uh, that God had made to Abraham. And uh, they were to be a blessing to the world. And they probably thought, we're not being a blessing to anybody. You go to an Israelite in Egypt and saying, hey, you're one of the chosen people, aren't you? You're being a blessing to the world. He said, not at all. We've been locked in this place for 400 years. Treated like dirt, slaves. And when they got back to, Israel, to Canaan, eventually some of them were taken away by the Syrians who invaded them. And then the Babylonians took charge of them and then the Persians overran them and then the Greeks in the, in, the, in the intertestamental period overran that area of the world and then the Romans became the superpower when the New Testament opens they're under the domination of Rome and you say how in the world are we supposed to be the people who cause who bring blessing to the world but then Jesus Christ was born and you know when he was born it says in Galatians 4 verse 4, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son. When was Jesus born? Dead on time. When the fullness of time had come. And uh, something like two and a half thousand years between his promise to Abraham and the birth of Christ. God's not in a hurry. And sometimes when we're in a hurry, we want to see things, we want to get things done, we, we, we short-circuit the real purpose of God. I quoted this verse the other morning as well in Isaiah 5.19. There's a list of woes, and we recognize most of those woes. Woes to those who, who get drunk, those who stay up late with wine, those who build houses together and they don't allow the countryside, etc. A bit of something about cities there. 
And uh, then he says this, Woe to those who say, let God hurry. Isaiah 5.19 Woe to those who say, let God hurry, let him finish his work, that we may see it. Woe to you, he says. Because if you want to see what God is doing, you're going to force things that are not really from God. God works over a much bigger time. And so into our own hearts as well comes this quality of patience. Patience. I remember when I was young talking to a man who was a preacher I respected enormously and I was talking about some things I, I wanted to do and things that weren't happening. And he said to me, you need to ask God for three things. I said, what are they? He said, ask him for patience, and then ask him for more patience, then ask him for more patience. He said, just wait. And uh, that was so helpful to me. God's delays, as other people have said, God's delays are not God's denials. And we wait and we trust. We can produce Ishmael's by getting impatient, as Abraham did rather than waiting for the Isaac in God's time. It's a great verse in John 13, verse 7, when Jesus said, uh, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later on you'll understand. That was in the context of washing the feet of the disciples. But a wonderful principle. You don't know now what I'm doing, he said to them. So don't try to work it out. Be patient. One day you will understand. But not yet. How do we learn patience? There's an interesting statement in Romans 5, verse 3. The, the, the authorized, the King James Version says, We glory in tribulation, knowing that tribulation works. Patience. Isn't that interesting? The source of patience is actually tribulation. Watchman Nee, in one of his books, tells of a lady who came to visit him one day and said, Would you pray that God would give me patience? He said, are you sure? She said, yes, I need God to give me patience. He said, then let's pray together. And apparently they, they, they knelt down or something, and, and he said, God, you know everything about this lady. You know everything about her circumstances. And I want to pray that you'll bring into her life such tribulation, such difficulty, such hardships, that she'll have no idea what to do. And while he was praying this, this lady got up and said, no, don't ask for that. I've got enough of that already. He said, you don't understand. Tribulation brings patience. Uh, you don't get it just by hoping you can switch off all the things that trouble you. It's in the tribulation you find the patience. And then we won't look at um, things like kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. The last in this list is self-control. That's an interesting one. The fruit of the spirit is not spirit control, but self-control. In fact, strictly speaking, the New Testament never talks about being controlled by the Spirit. To be controlled means that we're not responsible for our actions anymore. We're being controlled in some way. But he says, no, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. It is the Spirit of God who enables you to be in control of yourself. Philippians 2 says, work out your own salvation in verse 12. Why? For it is God who works in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. God is at work in you, that's true, but you have to work it out. That's the discipline of your part. I mentioned the other night the relationship of discipline and dependence. We depend upon the Spirit of God, but not just sitting back 
passively, for as we depend on the Spirit of God, we also then, in a disciplined way, allow the Spirit of God to express himself through us. In Colossians 1 and verse 28, I think it is. Let me just um, read it to you, 28 or 29. Uh, I'll read both those verses. He says, uh, We proclaim Christ admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. And to this end, I labor struggling with all his energy which so powerfully works in me. He says, I labor and struggle with his energy that works in me. So his is the energy on which you depend. Ours is the struggle and ours is the labor. And uh, because God delights to work in our world through people, of course. Not just we're zombies or don't participate. So in Second Peter chapter 1, uh, Peter talks there about the fact that we have everything we need for life and godliness in our knowledge of Christ, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. That's in Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. And then he says in verse 5, for this very reason, because you have everything you need for life and godliness, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love and you have there a list almost parallel to the fruit of the spirit and Peter says this because you have everything you need for life and godliness because Jesus Christ in you is completely adequate for this reason make every effort see isn't that a contradiction no it means that because you have adequate resources within you, now make every effort to live in dependence upon the Spirit of God to accomplish the work of God. If you have a car, and because we talked a bit about this on Tuesday, I use this illustration as well on Tuesday morning. It's a kind of spontaneous conversation we're having with uh, various pastors and leaders but I, I, I like to see it this way sometimes. Uh, if you have a car, the engine in that car could say to the rest of the car, without me, you can do nothing. That would be perfectly true. If you don't have an engine, you can keep some chickens in the car, but that's about all. You can't go anywhere. As Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. But most of you have a car outside right now with an engine and a bonnet uh, doing nothing, at least you hope it is. <laughs> Why? Because in addition to the engine and the hood and the bonnet, I'm bilingual but I get mixed up sometimes. In addition to the engine and the bonnet, you need a driver behind the wheel who will turn the ignition, put it into gear, release the clutch, hold the steering wheel and drive it down the road. Or like some Australian Cars, I've noticed, aim it down the road. <laughs> now, what's making the car go? Is it the engine under the bonnet or is it the driver behind the wheel? Well, of course, it's both. We are workers together with God. I labor, I struggle, says Paul, with his energy that so powerfully works in me. I have an engine under the bonnet, which is the life of Jesus Christ, but in order for that engine to transfer to the wheels and get the car moving 
I have to learn to drive. And there are two big mistakes that uh, sometimes people make in the Christian life. One is that they, to use this metaphor, they try to drive the car without realizing there's an engine under the bonnet. So they sit behind the wheel, they've learned to hold a 10 to 2 position, put the gear in the right place, stick the clutch in, and then sit behind the wheel and make all the right noises that cars are supposed uh, to make. So they go, and they sit behind the wheel, and uh, when they look through the window, they haven't gone anywhere. Why? Because all the discipline, all the right activity engaging in, if it doesn't release the power, the engine will get them nowhere. On the other hand, there are some Christians who are very excited about the engine under the bonnet, and they put their foot on the, on, on the accelerator pedal, and, and, and they make a huge noise, and brow, 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 you know, and there's exhaust blowing out of the back, and dust blowing down the street, and the windows are rattling, and, and, and the car, you've got your foot on the, on the pedal, but you look at the window, you haven't gone anywhere. Why? Because in addition to the engine under the bonnet, You've got to engage the, clutch, engage the gear, release the clutch, and steer it down the road. Now, the big dangers in the Christian life is, one, to try our hardest to make the Christian life work. Sitting behind the wheel, going... Boom. The other mistake is to uh, take this passive spirit, this quietistic approach that says, it's entirely God, and I do nothing. And nothing happens either. It's obedience to him, it's discipline and dependence that go together. And this is what expresses the fruit of the Spirit. It is self-control uh, as the last uh, quality that he puts there. And he says, you know, finishes that passage saying, against such there is no law. In other words, he says to the Galatians, there's absolutely no reason why any one of you in the church in Galatia shouldn't experience this. There's nothing against it apart from our own unwillingness to appropriate it. Yet there's a battle, the spirit and the flesh. The flesh will never give up. You and I will be tempted till the day we die. One of the great things about going to heaven is that we'll leave behind this old nature. But in the meantime, the flesh will fight against the spirit. The spirit will fight against the flesh to keep you... to. to, to uh, the flesh fights to keep us from doing what we should do. But as we live in dependence upon the spirit, rather than the flesh, he produces fruit, love, joy, kindness. And we'll be pretty nice people to be around. <laughs> because what's being expressed in us, filtered through all our own inadequacies, filtered through all our brokenness, filtered through all our failings, which are here in this life, but filtered through will be the life of the Lord Jesus. And people will see in us something of him. To experience Christ in you, as we call these meetings, that's what it means. Not a passive, quietistic approach, but active, disciplined obedience coupled with active dependence. And those two enable us to live. Does that make sense? I always say that when I finish, because I'm never sure if it has made sense, because I look at your faces. <laughs> but uh, no. And so let's pray. Let's ask God to make that real and uh, operative and experiential in our own lives and our own experience.
Father, thank you for everyone here this evening. We have joined together because we love you. We love your word. We love your truth. We love your son. And we want to grow in him. We want to grow in godliness. We want our lives to be increasingly a means by which you can exhibit your own character, kindness and love and gentleness and patience and goodness and self-control. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that as we humbly live in dependence on you and we humbly live in obedience to you, that those around us will find that there are fruit that can feed their hungry souls of our love, our peace, our joy, our patience. And all these qualities are designed to feed other people. Make this real for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.